You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to academics and students, I'm your host, Emma Fabregat. Today I'll be speaking with Tom Corbyn. And it sort of demonstrates that countries like South Korea and Australia, when they cooperate amongst each other and with other countries, can actually have a meaningful impact, especially in global crisis situations where you would traditionally look to the US for leadership, but given its own struggles with COVID-19 at home and the upcoming presidential election have somewhat constrained its ability to look further afield. We will be discussing Tom's experience from his time at university the importance of postgraduate work for defining a career path, getting his work published in think tanks such as The Diplomat, and diving into his current research on Australia and South Korea's bilateral relationship over the last decade. I understand that you studied a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations and East Asian History Politics at UNSW, in which you also went on exchange in South Korea. I wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit about your time in South Korea and the interest behind Asian studies. The interest in Asian studies, as broad a category as that may sound, started when I sort of had a brief stopover in South Korea on my way to and back from Europe in 2013 or 2014. And it sort of ended up being the most fascinating country that I went to on that trip, simply because it was so different to sort of any Western or European culture that I'd sort of experienced before. Entirely fascinating in different cultural landscape, uh, historical landscape, cuisine, pretty much everything about the So as soon as I came back from Europe, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Asian Studies, but sort of picked up IR as my second major in my second year once I discovered that I also enjoyed that. And that's at the point at which I sort of started to really focus in on East Asian history and contemporary politics as my sort of major focus field. Asian Studies itself doesn't actually really give you a a strong idea of what I actually looked at. So I sort of, I don't know, I think it's more instructive to say that I looked at East Asian history and contemporary politics, sort of from a period 5-600 BC right up until the present. And then after your bachelor's, you wrote an honours thesis about Japanese energy security and domestic politics using securitization theory. So what was your experience writing an honours thesis and how do you think it helped you career-wise once you stepped out of university? I kind of made a late decision to go down the honors path. I sort of got to late third year and realized that I hadn't actually thought of what I was going to do next. So in some sense, I kind of just fell into it. But I sort of already made up my mind, having gone to South Korea on exchange earlier in third year, just for a six or seven week window, that South Korean and to probably an equal extent, Japanese politics, history and contemporary relations were areas that I wanted to focus on. And I mean, as anybody who's done a bachelor sort of knows, there's only sort of a limited scope for focusing in on the things that you really, really want to look at in detail. And doing an honors thesis sort of allowed me to really zero in on something that I've been interested in for a long time, which was the sort of the social and political impacts that came out of the Fukushima disaster in 2011 and how they sort of changed the energy security and energy politics landscape in Japan. Doing like actually writing the honors thesis was a really good exercise in learning how to write a research paper that's longer than 3000 words and doesn't necessarily just correspond to a framework of criteria set for you by somebody else. There was a lot more scope and a lot more flexibility to actually really look at what I wanted to in the way that I wanted to. And applying the securitization theory lens allowed me to sort of look at what I wanted to look at, but still produce an original finding. And sort of funnily enough, it 
was my sort of literature review and theory sections in my thesis that got me high marks, not necessarily my content about Japanese energy security and domestic politics. Do you always have to use a theory when you're doing an honours? No, of course not. There was a guy who was doing honours in the same year as me and he had the same supervisor and his thesis was completely untheoretical and simply based on an analysis. His thesis was related to cybersecurity, which is sort of like in the scheme of IR theory, it's quite a new area for people to sort of be coming up with theoretical frameworks to address. So in some sense, it just didn't make sense for him, but he was also a hardcore realist. Um, So I think if you're a realist, you sort of have a slight disdain for theory to begin with anyway. Don't get me wrong, I've sort of been interested in different elements of IR theory over the course of my studies, but there were only a certain few schools of thought which I believed actually told me anything useful from my point of view about how the world works and how people interact and constructivism and the sort of the security offshoot of that, which is securitization theory, were sort of the two most appealing frameworks that I could use to look at what I wanted to look at. Yeah, and I feel like constructivism also gives you more space to be able to discuss and criticize different aspects. While when you're kind of stuck within one theory like um, realism, you kind of have to stick to a certain narrative. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like theories are essentially different tools that you can use to uncover certain facts or truths about any given situation, almost depending on what you want to find. So it's not necessarily that there is one theory that is, you know, more or less correct than other theories. A lot of the time, it's actually about what you want to say or the narrative that you want to present about a certain thing and how the theory allows you to explain it in a manner that is academic and convincing. Yeah, of course. And so what did you do when you stepped out of university? So once your bachelor's was done and once your honors was done? So about a week after finishing or submitting my honors thesis, rather, which was about mid-October, I still sort of had like itchy fingers for writing. So I sort of poured that slightly nervous energy about what mark I was going to get into writing a series of articles for a platform called The Diplomat, basically about various aspects of contemporary East Asian politics. So on the one hand, the natural avenue for me to take was to springboard off my thesis and write some articles about the state of Japan's nuclear industry, you know, at that point, six or seven years on from the disaster. But I also sort of started to tap into my interest in South Korea at this point, and I started writing articles about Australia-South Korea security relations, South Korea's perspectives on the quadrilateral security dialogue, which is a four-way meetup between Australia, the US, India, and Japan, and sort of a range of other things. So I sort of produced maybe an article a month between October and February, and I eventually ended up landing an internship with the United States Study Center at Sydney University, where I was sort of tasked with working on the Trump administration's emerging Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, Australia's place in that, and Australia's own sort of foreign policy and defense engagement with East Asia. U.S. studies wasn't something that I had really looked into in any great detail beforehand. I mean, obviously, I had come across literature when looking at South Korea and Japan that involved the United States, which was somewhat unavoidable given that both countries
countries are treaty allies of the US. But this was the first time that I'd ever really dived into an America-focused kind of project, let alone a deep dive into sort of the metrics and the frameworks that people use to look at different military capabilities around the world and to make judgments about, you know, the security or insecurity in different contexts. Yeah, of course. It's really impressive that you were able to get, you know, an internship while also constantly publishing articles. I mean, as any uni student knows, it's really difficult to actually get pieces published and it's quite a long process and most people don't even know how to start. How did you go about it and what tips could you give a university student or even somebody that's finished university that does want to get their work out there and even the importance of it? Sure. So the first piece of advice is to select a platform that you'd like to write for, but also to have a look at what's on that platform and in some ways identify where the gaps are and whether you can fill them. So for example, with The Diplomat, I noticed that there weren't many people, if any people, writing about Japanese nuclear energy policy, for example, or Australia-South Korea security relations. So I sort of set myself up to plug those gaps and to sort of make an original contribution to debates, which probably weren't getting as much oxygen as other issues around that time. The other thing I'd say is that honors or any sort of postgraduate qualification will probably get you an interview for a job. But often it's the extracurriculars or the things that you can demonstrate that you've done beyond simply just studying that will most likely get you the job. So when I went for the job at the USSC, they were particularly interested in my Northeast Asia specialization, specifically South Korea and Japan. But they were also quite impressed that not only had I written an honors thesis, but I had also produced by that time sort of four or five articles off my own back. Like I didn't get paid to write those articles. I did them because one, I was interested in the topics, but two, because I thought it would give me a leg up in looking for, you know, a doorway into the industry, which is hyper competitive, by the way, even now going for fellowship positions or research opportunities, even as somebody who has maybe two or three years of experience under their belt at this point, it's still hyper competitive and it's still really hard to stand out above the fray. So looking to publish articles or do anything else like take internships you know anything that's going to put your cv in a different light compared to those of everybody else who have done you know a ba or a bachelor's in anything yeah and when you were trying to get your stuff published at for example the diplomat were how were you getting in contact with them <laughs> so there's literally a write for us tab um, on the diplomat landing page, you send them a brief pitch about what you want to write about. They ask you whether you're seeking you know, money for your contribution. And then you do a simple mathematical equation to show that you're not a robot and then you submit it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's actually quite an easy process. You just kind of got to put the work in. Yeah, the like the diplomat, just as a disclaimer, I'm in no way affiliated with the diplomat, but it's quite a it's quite a good platform and it's quite a democratic platform in that anybody can get published on there if they're well researched enough, if they're eloquent enough and they take the time, the effort to write something. It's funny because when I was, um, I think I was in my second year and I was reading this article that was saying how important it is to get, you know, the word out there and your name put on a published piece anywhere on the internet. And I that's when I came across the YDS and I literally just emailed them and I was like, hey, I have a few, you know, essays that I've done throughout uni that I think would be interesting to publish. And straight away they were like, yeah, okay, well let's see what we can do. And then, you know, just 
go through the process of shortening it and making it how they want it to be and then just publishing it. And like you said, I think that's been one of the biggest things that have helped me as well get internships that I have now because I've been able to prove what I can do through things that people can access online. Yeah, totally. It's like, and it's easy as somebody stepping straight out of university to be overawed by the wealth and the depth of experience that already exists out there. But the important thing to remember is that, you know, there are always going to be angles or issues that other people haven't explored from the angle that you want to explore them from, or that your voice is somehow less valuable or means less when it makes a contribution to a debate that might be going on. And you sort of have to have the courage to put yourself out there, not only to sort of show your work to somebody other than the person who is marking your university paper, but also to expose your ideas and your thoughts about different issues to criticism and to be able to sort of engage in protracted debates or engagements with people about these ideas. Yeah, 100%. And and the thing is as well, when you're at university and you're writing essays, your essays shouldn't just sit on your you know, desks, desktop and be, you know, like ready to go into the bin once you've submitted it. That's useful information that you've spent hours and hours doing of research and that deserves to also be heard. And if it's good enough and you've got a high mark for it or you think you can improve it, then it definitely should be worth the effort of, you know, trying to publish it online. Yeah, totally. I think like it's quite a strategic move over the course of your studies to at any given opportunity write papers about the things that you are interested in, even if these pieces are never destined to be published. It's still an opportunity to start to lay the framework or the groundwork for your, you know, your future expertise, basically. So when you come out of university, you've actually, you can demonstrate that you're a potential expert in a certain area. Definitely. Now, diving into some of your current research, which looks into the development of Australia-South Korea Defence Corporation, could you explain what this corporation has looked like over the past decade and what has driven and or obstructed the development of that relationship? Sure. Well, I guess maybe it's a good idea for me to explain like why I'm looking at it in the first place. So obviously, I was already interested in South Korea, having travelled there, looked at it over the course of my studies. I did one course about IR generally, but then I also did like a deep dive course into North Korean politics, demographics, economics, you name it. So sort of a a deep dive beyond just the nuclear brinksmanship that everybody is familiar with or, you know, games of where is Kim Jong-un as we witnessed recently. So obviously, yeah, I was already interested in South Korea. And as I mentioned before, my first couple of articles for The Diplomat were sort of looking at this, you know, defense and security relationship between Australia and South Korea. It's something that I sort of kept looking at over the course of working at the United States Study Center over the last two years. And now having landed at Pacific Forum as the Lloyd and Lillian Basie Fellow, I've got the chance to dive into this topic in some substantial detail which I think is really important because this is a relationship, at least from an Australian perspective, that doesn't get nearly as much oxygen as Australia's relationships with its other major partners. So obviously there's the US, but a lot is also made of the Australia-Japan relationship. Obviously, Indonesia is our closest neighbor and is going to be sort of a great power in its own right in the decades to come. 
Um, and then there's Australia's relationship with India as sort of this untapped source of, you know, economic and strategic partnership. But South Korea, sort of despite being listed as one of these, you know, first priority or first order partners, just doesn't get the same amount of exposure in Australian discussion. So I was sort of interested in why that was, uh, but also challenging assumptions and perspectives that I might have had about the relationship, but also those that I sort of see other writers in Australia and South Korea to some extent adopt. So sort of we're both US allies, for example, and that is frequently cited as a reason for the two countries to cooperate. But is it really that simple? I mean, can a, a security and defense relationship really be reduced to a simple matter of who are we both friends with and it does afford some sort of military interoperability in terms of the platforms that we open but that's not the sort of the be all and the end all of the relationship and sort of for that reason defense is usually the first place that a lot of people go to when they think about australia south korea relations especially in the contemporary context and i've been guilty of this too but the more research i do it seems to me that at least military to military cooperation isn't where we should be looking it's not to say defense cooperation in terms of you know defense industry and defense science and tech cooperation uh, can't be useful and that we can't be useful strategic partners to one another in other senses but perhaps military to military cooperation isn't necessarily the best place to look and i sort of arrived at that conclusion by basically looking at the last 10 years of the defense and security aspect of the relationship to sort of try and pull out what were the main drivers of this relationship but what were the obstacles that sort of popped up that have meant the relationship arguably hasn't developed to the extent that a lot of people would have hoped it would or would have expected that it would. So the first real attempt to institutionalize this defense relationship was in 2009 when Kevin Rudd and the Labor Party were in power in Australia and there was a conservative administration in power in South Korea. The sort of the institutionalization of this defense relationship occurred in the parallel context of the opening of FTA negotiations and it sort of meant that trade overshadowed the defense aspects of the relationship and you know for me this has been a recurring theme over the last decade like security has sort of been this secondary albeit necessary accompaniment to deepening economic and other diplomatic relations and so when Rudd and Lee the South Korean president met in 2009 they issued this joint statement which basically said Australia and South Korea are going to look to deepen their security and defense cooperation in military exercises but mostly in non-traditional security pursuits such as counterterrorism. Bear in mind, this is occurring at sort of the height of the global war on terror. Counterproliferation, obviously relevant to North Korea's sort of missile and nuclear programs and some sort of documented attempts that North Korea has made to export that technology elsewhere. Maritime security in Southeast Asia, counter piracy, those sorts of areas, which are useful vectors for defense cooperation, but don't necessarily focus on high-end military interoperability like the sort that we're starting to see a demand for now. Eventually, sort of get to 2013, and there's a the first ever two plus two defense and foreign policy dialogue between the ministers. The sort of the readout that comes out of that is full of ambition, but sort of very light on concrete deliverables. And to be honest, that's sort of the story for relations over the, the next six years, right up until the present. So, notwithstanding this sort of blueprint for defense and security cooperation, which is released in 2015, which is again a very ambitious document, but remains 
remains largely that and doesn't actually deliver anything concrete. And there are sort of some other background political factors that are going on over this time that are distracting South Korean and Australian policymakers alike from each other right up until the present. So sort of looking back over that period, it's obvious there's plenty of ambition there. But my feeling is that we might have actually missed the boat for expanding and deepening military to military cooperation while we actually had leaders and governments in both capital cities of those two countries who were actually interested in doing so with each other. And to me, it just doesn't seem like that same ambition or that same willingness to invest the time and resources in each other, at least at the military and strategic level, is there anymore. So what would you say now is Australia's current career policy? Uh, It's hard to know because we've sort of gone through what I would characterize as a period of maybe three or four years from an Australian perspective of nuclear tunnel vision. And that is to say, probably since the advent of the Turnbull government in 2015 and the advent of the Trump administration in late 2016, but also the sort of the coming to power of the progressive government of Moon Jae-in in South Korea in early 2017. There has sort of been this overriding focus from Australia on the nuclear diplomacy and potential nuclear conflict that could erupt on the Korean Peninsula. So obviously we had President Trump with his now infamous fire and fury remarks at the UN General Assembly. We sort of had a series of North Korean threats made against not only the US, but also nuclear threats made against Australia over the course of 2017. So in some sense, it's understandable that the focus on Australia's part would be, one, zero in on the threat that North Korea does continue to pose to Australia in terms of its increasingly robust and extensive missile program, but also the potential instability that that could be caused by, you know, an unconventional US president who was taking quite a confrontational approach to the North Korea issue. Australia didn't do itself any favors really by seemingly without pause for thought saying that we would be the first ally to turn up to support the US in the event of a conflict with North Korea, which didn't really leave us a lot of room for maneuver, at least diplomatically or politically. But sort of the big, the biggest takeaway for me from this period is there was almost next to nothing, at least in public, about where the Australia and South Korea relationship actually fit in to Australia's interests on the Korean Peninsula at this point. So notwithstanding the fact that the two countries had invested probably five or six years of decent, serious diplomatic capital and effort in trying to get to the relationship to where it was, the role of South Korea in Australia's strategic thinking about Northeast Asia really seemed to drop off in 2015 and 2016. On the South Korean side, you had the impeachment of then-President Park Geun-hye in late 2016, which sort of threw South Korea into foreign policy and domestic political turmoil and sort of, in some sense, took it off the table as an attractive partner for Australia for that time being. But even with the sort of the stabilization of South Korean domestic politics and sort of expressions of hope for the relationship from Australian and South Korean leaders alike since mid-2018, the relationship is really yet to go anywhere. That said, there have been some recent promising signs in terms of cooperation on defense industry, research and development, development cooperation in the Pacific Islands, for example. But I'm sort of holding my breath to wait and see whether there are actually any deliverables that come out of it. Of course. 
And then from the findings of your research, what recommendations would you make as for what and where the two sides should look to to cooperate in the near and midterm future? Uh, So as I mentioned before, I'm sort of skeptical of closer military to military cooperation. I think like the first place a lot of people go to when they think about the defense aspect of Australia-South Korea relations is, why don't we do more exercises together? So as it stands, there's a single bilateral military exercise which focuses on anti-submarine warfare, and that's held every two years. When it was stood up, originally it seemed like it was going to be an annual occurrence, but for some reason shifted to a biannual occurrence. The exercise hasn't necessarily evolved in scope or scale over time. And it's never been held outside South Korea, which sort of tells you a lot, I think, about the limited strategic scope of the military to military cooperation being focused on North Korea. That said, I don't think this is the right place to look. And to extrapolate from that, I would suggest that there are a couple of other areas that are related to defense industry or defense research and development, for example, that would be potentially productive vectors for cooperation between the two. And just to say that practical defense cooperation isn't necessarily the best way forward, it doesn't mean that the two countries can't be important strategic partners for each other in a wider sense. So rather than overt military to military cooperation, I would suggest, and I am suggesting in a current paper that I'm writing about the topic, that Australia and South Korea should look at cooperating on addressing some shared defense industry, science and technology research and development challenges that we face. So we both share some challenges in securing robust sovereign defense industry capabilities, plus in our reliance on high-end U.S. military platforms to outfit our forces with. That's all been well and good while the U.S. has been the undisputed leader in military technology. But with the rise of China and with these sort of various budgetary, bureaucratic maintenance and modernization problems that are currently afflicting the U.S. industrial base, I would argue that it's increasingly important for capable U.S. allies and partners like Australia and South Korea to start to look to each other more so as sources of innovation and for new cutting-edge technologies. Obviously, not just in the defense space, but because my emphasis here is on defense, that's where I'm looking. So there's a paper I'm writing at the moment, which is about the potential for Australia-South Korea cooperation in developing undersea drones to either complement or entirely replace certain other submarine capabilities over time. I would also suggest that there is scope for Australia and South Korea to cooperate in developing certain kinds of munitions or expendables that are used by their military forces. So, for example, certain kinds of missiles that are used by Australian and South Korean anti-submarine warfare capabilities, whether, you know, surface vessels or air force assets, many of which, by the way, are also fielded by the United States. So sort of cooperating on something like this would not only allow Australia and South Korea to address their own vulnerabilities, but might also allow them to take some of the pressure off the US as the sole supplier of high-end military hardware ammunition and other expendables for its allies in the Indo-Pacific. Some other areas I would suggest, you know, what are the other non-military uses for Australian and South Korean military forces where we can actually foreseeably expand and deepen our cooperation? So disaster cooperation, for example, regional anti-piracy in Southeast Asia, capacity building amongst uh, Southeast Asian states. These sorts of things are areas where I think there are some decent chances that relations might take an upward swing if we invest the time and the resources in it.
Do you love global questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with upcoming events. Of course. And I know you recently published an article with The Diplomat talking about using this global pandemic as an opportunity to boost wider cooperation between the two nations. And how, so how can their bilateral relationship be deepened and what benefits would they bring? Uh, so I published that article in the context of this was when Australia was just beginning to voice its desire for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, specifically relating to their origins in China. But this was also at a time when South Korea's diplomatic capital had really shot up in sort of an unexpected way, given that early on in the pandemic, South Korea was looking like it was going to be one of the heaviest hit countries through a range of sort of astute policymaking and political leadership from the Moon administration, but also due to some of the sort of the particulars of how South Korean politics is organized. It essentially allowed South Korea to put a hard ceiling, as it were, on the COVID-19 curve and make sure that, you know, things didn't get out of hand. And sort of even with the recent setbacks that you've seen in sort of case numbers slightly rising again in South Korea, it's still regarded as, you know, one of the, if not the success story. Um, and a lot of countries have looked to South Korea for assistance in terms of policymaking at home, digital policy in terms of tracking the movements of people who are suspected or confirmed with having COVID-19, things like that. So the argument in the piece that I wrote was essentially that Australia should look to tap into that political capital in its own efforts to sort of build a consensus behind a push for this global inquiry. And it's sort of hard to tell because South Korea wouldn't have been willing to play a really overt role in that process, given its sort of sensitivities to economic or political punishment from China. But there's, there's still a chance that South Korea may have played a behind the scenes role, whether directly or indirectly, in bringing more and more countries on board with this push for an inquiry, uh, which we've seen in the last couple of days it was resulted in, I think it was 137 countries or something signing up to the push, including China in the end. And it sort of demonstrates that countries like South Korea and Australia, when they cooperate amongst each other and with other countries, can actually have a meaningful impact, especially in global crisis situations where you would traditionally look to the US for leadership, but given its own struggles with COVID-19 at home and the upcoming presidential election have somewhat constrained its ability to look further afield. But also with China and its own credibility sort of on the line here, given the sort of the documented or alleged at least instances of covering up evidence of the pandemic in the early days. Those sort of two superpowers missing in action, as it were, have opened the door for middle powers like Australia and South Korea to cooperate a bit more. Yeah, definitely. And I know in your article, you talked um, a little bit about using the G20 as a forum to address the ge geoeconomic issues that arisen from the pandemic. Um, do you do you think this will actually happen or is it actually happening at the moment? Uh, so again, when I wrote the article, there wasn't sort of a lot to talk about in terms of the G20's response. Uh, in fact, most of the work that I had read had been about the inability of the G7 or the G20 to get past the politicking between the US and China to sort of formulate a robust economic response or global economic response rather. 
My suggestion here was really a throwback to 2009, funnily enough, when the Security and Defence Partnership was first institutionalised. But one of the major drivers of Australia-South Korea relations at that point was sort of cooperating within the G20, one, to sort of make it the globe's uh, premier geoeconomic forum, but two, to sort of galvanize countries to double down on their responses and remain committed to those responses to the global financial crisis, which has just occurred. So for me, there's sort of this was a proven example of where Australian and South Korean cooperation in those sorts of forums can be effective. Uh, and this is exactly the sort of global crisis where we need those countries to be stepping up to the plate again. Obviously, not just Australia and South Korea, but other middle powers, whether like-minded or not, can also play a useful part in this. Australia and South Korea's um, policy and relationship, do you see it changing more towards the recommendations that you have made, or do you think it will stay the same and very centered? Increasing strategic competition between US and China. It's the analytical community and the output you sort of see online is increasingly occupied with sort of the strategic ramifications of this growing competition for US allies as well. But as I've said before, I, yeah, I don't think this is the right place to look. There are obviously other potential areas where we can cooperate and cooperation can be useful, whether it's defense industry, uh, or as we saw at the end of last year, the sort of the major hydrogen agreements that were signed between Australia and South Korea to sort of deepen the energy partnership. Those are sort of examples of where I think the two can be better strategic partners for each other, but also support their common strategic patron in the US, but also provide better partnership options for other countries in the region. My sense is talking to people who are clued in on South Korean domestic politics is that the interest in Australia just isn't there at the moment. The Moon administration obviously has North Korea to contend with. The president's recent landslide election victory in Seoul has essentially given him a mandate to double down on his approach to North Korea. South Korea's current regional policy framework towards Southeast Asia includes India, in some indirect ways includes New Zealand, but does not at all include Australia. And that sort of has appeared puzzling to a lot of people who have sort of regarded, it's called the New Southern Policy, regarded the New Southern Policy as sort of South Korea's overall, you know, strategic approach to the region. But it's fundamentally an economic approach. And South Korea doesn't really see Australia as part of the sort of emerging market that is Southeast Asia and India tacked onto it. In terms of Australia's interests, once you sort of look past the positive rhetoric of, you know, sharing interests, being like-minded democracies, fellow U.S. allies, it's actually hard to find concrete rationale for why we would look to South Korea any more than we already do as a strategic partner. What I'm trying to do essentially is to argue that if we look in the right places and invest the time and the resources in those places, there are actually avenues to do so. And sort of given the projections of South Korea's growth in economic power and sort of the uncertain future of what might happen on the Korean Peninsula one day, whether it were to be reunified or whether something else were to happen, it's in Australia's interest to make sure that it is adequately engaged with South Korea on a variety of levels to sort of ensure that when developments do occur, that we're not caught flat footed or worse on the back foot. And how would you even compare that to its relationship with a wider region, for example, with Japan? Uh, Australia's or South Korea's relationship? Australia's. Yeah, the Japan one is interesting because what people don't often realize from an Australian point of view is how South Korea looks 
at Japan's foreign policy activities more broadly, but, you know, in this case, we're talking about Australia-Japan relations. And if you have sort of studied the history of that region and the sort of the state and the landscape of contemporary politics in any certain way, as I have, the importance of history and the importance of prestige and face really do come into different countries' geopolitics. So I've seen some argue before that South Korea looked to Australia as an opportunity to upgrade its strategic relationship with another U.S. ally precisely because Japan was doing so at around the same time. The political, historical, and prestige dynamic at play in the sort of the triangle between Australia, Japan, and South Korea is something that I think really needs to be unpacked if Australia is to really understand the dynamics of that region and how best to go about building relationships, not only with Japan, but also South Korea, also China, and a range of other countries in Asia. So one thing I'm sort of peripherally involved in working on is some work that is continuing to be done at the United States Study Center, where I used to work regarding sort of U.S. military posture and modernization programs, specifically in how they relate to the Indo-Pacific. There was a really noteworthy report put out by the center last year called Averting Crisis, which was released in August, made a really big splash, uh, both in the media and in the sort of the policy analysis circles that I sort of move in at the strategic level. That's really worth read. And yes, that's something I continue to work on because it has ramifications, as I've alluded to over the course of this podcast, for Australia's regional strategy, for its military posture, and in many ways for how it looks to partnerships, no matter how well or poorly established, as sources of military innovation and military partnership in the future. Of course. And if somebody was interested in learning more about you and reading some of your work, where could they find you? So if you go to www.thediplomat.com and search Tom Corbin, it should just come up with all the articles that I've written for them. I think it's 12 or 13. Otherwise, you can head to pacforum.org. That's P-A-C-F-O-R-U-M. That's my current affiliation. You can find some examples of some work I've done for them up there on their Young Leaders blog specifically. Or you can find me on Twitter at CorbinTom. That's C-O-R-B-E-N-T-O-M. That's amazing. Okay, well, thank you for your time. No worries. It was a pleasure. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us through our social media, website, or links in the description. This is Global Questions, and thanks for listening.